you know, I like that she said this was an art house film because I was sort of surprised it was at my, you know, local multiplex because they don't always get the artier kinds of things. I know you probably saw it at the Charles, but I will say that there was quite a decent number of people there giving this movie a shot during opening weekend. How about where you were? Well, you know, there, there were some decent people in, in the audience, but not many decent people on screen. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, you're right, though. You know, what's interesting is um, I tend to be old fashioned in terms of making distinctions sometimes between like art house cinema and more commercially based stuff. But you know what, particularly with the multiplication of multiplexes with various streaming options that people have and so on, it is a newer world that we've entered in the sense of the traditional dividing lines between art house and commercial have blurred. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about Emily the Criminal, and then Mike has an art house pick, and I've got a few for the streaming side of things. But let's start off with Emily the Criminal, Mike. I want to say from the get-go that the first thing that intrigued me about it is that Emily plays a student with a lot of debt. And I thought, wow, that is very immediate, isn't it, Mike? Well, this is a yes and no response to that. I had the initial response that you've voiced, namely uh, the character Emily is $70,000 in debt, her student debt. So she's desperate that way. And yeah, you know, certainly for us as, as college people, we, we can, you know, relate to things like that. So that's the yes of it. The no of it is just, in her case, it's such an extreme situation. She also has a criminal record for assault, which I'm hoping most people with student debt don't have. So for her, it's kind of a one-two punch. And I shouldn't even smile at this because she's really in a desperate situation. She's so much in debt. And then, you know, the story explains, you know, how she got this criminal record. And, you know, whatever one thinks of her, we all make mistakes in life. She's made some mistakes, okay? The problem with that point is, how can you put that behind you? It's as vexing as trying to pay off the student debt. You know, she has this. So if you go for a job interview, it's something that is, you know, a question you get asked, right? So you feel sorry for her that way. And in fact, the very title of, of the film, of course, Emily the Criminal, I'm not spoiling anything. Uh, yes, she is a, a criminal. What makes it work dramatically is that Aubrey Plaza is playing Emily. And although I, I'm not a huge advocate for the film, I respect it. It was holding my interest. And I don't mean any of those like backhanded compliments. It really did. It really held my interest. I didn't think it went as deep, as far as it could have, and so on. But what makes it work, as I'm saying, is the fact that Aubrey Plaza is really totally invested in this character. She's totally believable. And really, in terms of her background as an actor, people initially would have known her more for you know comic roles, something like you know, Parks and Recreation or for feature films like Dirty Grandpa that aren't very good films, but, you know, that she has some presence in. What really is striking here, and it's all to her credit, is that she's so good in this. She's so convincing. She is Emily, and she doesn't try to make Emily overly sympathetic. Or, you know, that, that, I mean, Emily is not all that likable in places. She's got an edge to her. And the actor here, you know, goes with that edge and doesn't try to necessarily soften it so that we like her in more conventional, convenient ways. And that's one reason why, even though I, I thought the film sort of reached a certain level and then just kind of, when I, was, when I say coasted, I just simply mean reiterating, you know, the basic situation, the basic setup. It didn't necessarily go deeper into character or further with story. It was just reiterating it. So on the one hand, that was a little disappointing 
On the other hand, there is that strong performance and a character who's you know quite striking there, and within a film that has a quasi-documentary quality. The film's director, John Patton Ford, has a background in documentaries. It's what I call observational cinema, where you're watching a feature film, and that's always clear, but these feel like real people, and you're in real settings, the streets, the apartments, and so on. There's a grungy plausibility to the setting there. So, Marie, let me ask you about those points. I mean, specifically that central performance, but also, of course, within that very, very realistic a background. You really, you know, whether she's you know, working as, as a caterer and just, you know, the hassles of that job or whether, she, whether she's on, engaging in some more criminal activity, you really feel like you, you're believing what you're watching. I agree with you completely. I thought Aubrey Plaza was amazing in this. Very, very believable. And she maintains a likability because what she puts across is that sort of desperation and, you know, regretting mistakes, but not being able to move on. And what it reminded me the most of is, you know, back when I would stay up late and watch late night TV as a young teenager, they always had these prison movies on at night, you know, Caged Fear or something like that. And it would always be, you know, some woman who committed some minor, you know, shoplifting or something like that, who ends up, you know, being sent to prison to teach her a lesson. And then she learns, you know, how to be a really much better criminal on the inside. So it's, you know, do you really think that they should make an example of people if it just turns them into hardened criminals? You know, you can learn more about crime from the experts if you spend too much time around them kind of thing. And that's what this sort of reminded me of. It's since she can't escape, what she learns is how to try to beat the system and maybe succeed in that realm. And it's cynical, but I thought that actually worked as a storyline because Aubrey Plaza makes me believe it. I believe that she's angry. That she can't get a job. There's a wonderful scene with Gina Gershon, who I was surprised to see in it. It's kind of good to see her, where she plays this boss who, you know, is thinking about hiring her, but not going to pay her anything and knows that she really can't fight back and knows that she really can't bargain or advocate for herself, knows that she has no agency and sticks it to her anyway. So you, you get in those scenes, this feeling she has where she's got no way out. So she just doubles down. You mentioned what I think is probably the single most enjoyable scene in the film. Enjoyable because it's not enjoyable, at least for Emily, what's happening there. But it's so trenchant. It's so observant there. Because in a sentimental way, in a more conventional film, one might expect a kind of, uh, I'll call it female bonding. You know, that, these, that women can work together, cooperate, yada, yada. But in real life, any sort of class divide and all these tensions, that exists, you know, not just between genders, but within genders. Why shouldn't it, right? You know, in terms of people. So here's poor Emily, literally poor, and School of Hard Knocks. And you're right, in movies like that, prison is like a finishing school. You know, you just learn how to be a better criminal. And some of the most interesting scenes actually are what, as she engages in these scams through most of the film. It is like really interesting just to watch like, you know, a, a job that's well done, but then they realize they should tweak it or improve it, like how to be a better con artist, basically. And so it's an instructional manual for con artists in some ways. But when she goes to apply for that job, she has a friend, Liz, who's a genuine friend of hers. And Liz thinks, you know, she can get her, you know, an internship, you know, in a snazzy office. But Liz's boss, the Gina Gershon character, initially she's friendly. It's like, oh, we're both from New Jersey kind of bonding, whatever. And you think for like a moment or even for a minute 
hey, you know, the, the, even though one is like really well off and she's a boss and entitled that way, and the poor applicant's like a supplicant, right? Like, please give me a job. But the moment that Emily hears that it's an unpaid internship, she, you know what, you know, she's she's a tough cookie. I, I like to say, like a tough cookie in a sense that she's not going to be polite about this and letting and letting you know Liz's boss know how she feels about this because it's exploitation. And she'll say, like, you know, you think I'm going to come here and work for you and then you know not be paid anything for how many months? And then if you like me, maybe then you'll, you know. And she really reads her that out that way. And of course, then immediately Liz's boss, who had been friendly in a professional way you know, that kind of superficial bonding, we're from the same, you know, state kind of thing, how quickly she turns. And when she turns, it's vicious. And that scene, so when I call it enjoyable, ironically enjoyable, because it's not enjoyable, it's really disturbing, but but enjoyable, because it's so observant, it's so well crafted. And this is the feature film debut for this director. And there's scenes like that that nail it. I got to say, there are other scenes, as I mentioned before, there are other scenes where they always hold my interest, but it's what I call reiteration. Like you've pulled one job, right? One, one con artist job, you know, some scam. And then you get another two or three scenes where you're sort of just working variations on that. And so I think the film is a bit thin at that level. I don't think it's as fully satisfying or as fully developed um, a, a, as it might be, but you know, the Aubrey Plaza performance, spot on, and the quasi-documentary qualities you know, really are consistent throughout the film. So I would recommend the film based on those things. Just realize that, you know, it's not going to go soft and sweet and sentimental because, you know, much as we might feel sorry for Emily, she doesn't want you to feel sorry for her particularly. And I'm getting at, Marie, let me ask you about this because she's really, she's got that tough skin. When I say tough cookie, she's got that tough exterior and she's not always easy to warm up to. She's not always a very nice person, even to people uh, you know, who want to help her or work with her. Uh, she's got some edge to her. It, it's justified, we could say, but it's definitely an edge. What do you think of her edge? I thought that it was the most interesting part about the character. And I was sort of intrigued by the fact that they were letting a woman play that role, that sort of tough cookie role. I mean, we wouldn't even be talking about this probably if this was an episode of The Sopranos, where, you know, everybody is it's a free-for-all and there's just all kinds of violence and bad behavior and it's just accepted that some people are you know truly depraved but you know she's just a young woman she's a student she's you know you don't expect her to have that much of an edge and there's a couple of scenes that I thought were really brought that out and it reminded me Mike of a movie a French movie a prophet where a guy is you know sort of sent to the press kind of like what I was describing about the late night prison movies he did something wrong but what he learns in prison is how to beat the system. And there's two scenes that reminded me of that in Emily. One was, of course, the Gina Gershon job interview scene. And the reason for that is because when Gina Gershon says, you know, she, like you said, Mike, she's uh, vicious when she tells her, you know, what's up. And then she tries to make it sound like she understands where she's coming from by saying, you know, when I was coming up, I worked as a secretary. And, you know, that's where I started from. And Emily just shoots it right back at her and says, yeah, but you were paid. You were a paid secretary. So she's not having it. And you don't expect her to come back with that zinger. And then there's a scene later where she is robbed and she robs them right back in a way that is like, wow, you are really seriously bold to take these kinds of risks, especially when the reason things go bad for her in that situation is she does the very thing that they tell her not to do in the beginning when she starts off with the job. So, you know, it's all going to go, you know, it's, it will all end in tears, but she fights back. And that part of the movie I thought was very satisfying. 
She is definitely empowered. She is so bold. I love your use of that word because she is. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, a lot of what she does is not behavior we'd approve of. And yet when you look at her background and her desperation, you can, if not totally exonerate, at least have a measure of understanding for that. But again, it's not a movie that's going to go really sweet on you. It's a movie that has a tough edge itself. And so even though we can admire her in the way that Marie was mentioning, that kind of admiration has a certain limit to it because she doesn't particularly want you to like her. You know what I mean? And then the one inkling within her biography where you realize there is a gentler side to her, her background as a student, actually, Marina, and you mentioned it, she was an aspiring artist. And there's a really like kind of heart tugging scene. Yes, it, there are some scenes like that in the film. She's at a party and, you know, guy making conversation. And she says, well, you know, he has an artist, but haven't done anything art wise for a long time. You know, she has that background and under happier circumstances might have developed that talent. Here, it's a, sort of a talent that is more or less in the past or something that's only, you know, referenced that way. Mike, can you see them making more of this character or situation in a follow up movie? No, not at all. It seems to me that a film like this works because it's self-contained. It's a very, when I say small world, I don't mean that in a demeaning way or dismissive way, just simply it's, it's Emily the criminal. It's a little bit about her background and, and we see her as she you know, engages in these scams. And then that's it, you know? And, and so I, I actually would not want, I would never even contemplate a sequel to something like this. I don't want to see her suddenly, you know, turning her life around and going to art school and becoming a, a big gallery artist. And all that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I can think about that like sort of on the way home from watching the movie, but honestly, I wouldn't want to actually see that in any kind of sequel. I'm not a huge advocate for sequels, as you know, and so I'm, I'm certainly not pushing for that there. I think, I think a hypothetical sequel that I can contemplate for a few minutes that's enough for me. I don't really particularly want to see this. How do you feel about this? Because I, I don't think it's a film that's necessarily really asking for a sequel. No, and it certainly doesn't make the life of crime look glamorous or desirable. So it isn't as if the, it's not going to like an Oceans kind of a franchise you can see branching off. But given that Aubrey Plaza is so likable, I could see sort of more of a sliding door sort of scenario where her life takes a different turn. So instead of being Emily the criminal, she becomes Emily the artist or, you know, a different sort of scenario with the same kind of tough cookie character, but in a different scenario. Well, you know what I would prefer, frankly, is no sequel whatsoever for this film. I, I don't want to see a Emily the art star. I don't, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, yes, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'll be a cheerleader. I, I would love that to happen in her life. I don't want to see that as, as a movie particularly. But joking aside here, what I would like to see is because it is a performance that proves she can anchor a film and dramatically can anchor a film, simply look on that as a, what they call a drawing card, you know, that she would get more job offers in Hollywood, you know, and not for comic roles necessarily, but for roles like this, showing she's got the dramatic substance. How do you feel about that? Because it seems to me this is a movie that has sort of an art house ambiance to it. It's not going to be a, it hasn't been like a big commercial success, but people who like it, as I do respect it. I mean, I'm not wildly enthusiastic, but I respect it. And it seems to me it is that kind of drawing card or, you know, mixing metaphors, stepping stone or whatever. Don't you see it that way, Marie, that in effect, you know, the people in the business who see her in this role, they've got to acknowledge her, her skill with this performance. And then that, that, that would lead not to more Emily-like roles, but just simply more roles for the actress playing Emily. 
yes, I think you've summarized that perfectly because we probably don't need any more Emily movies, but we definitely need more movies with Aubrey in them because she she really is quite good in this and she does carry the film. It doesn't need to be a male-dominated story. Although I do think it kind of plows the same row as the card counter, which we watched and discussed several months ago, where you have, you know, a character sort of, you know, on the fringes of society doing something that, you know, you would certainly never consider yourself. But there is something to kind of getting a, a glimpse of what it is like on the on the dark side of town. Marie, you know, when you mentioned The Card Counter, it's a great film to mention in this respect because both these films amount to what we could call criminal procedurals. You know, not a life of crime that I've had or particularly want to have. And yet I felt like I learned something. That's the quasi-documentary quality, the, the, the observational sense of, oh, that's how it's done or that's how one would do it. And that's inherently interesting, isn't it? Like, you know, here's a situation and it's, it's like problem solving, right? How do you pull off this scam? And again, you know, she gets better as she goes along. And again, an instance of, as with so much criminal behavior, if only these criminals could turn their smarts to legal advantage. You know what I'm getting at? Like how clever they are with these scams. What if you went straight with it? Now, now, you know, and I, I shouldn't jest that way because in her case, because of the student debt, because of the criminal record and on all those things together, she's just in a de desperate situation. We're working, uh, you know, let's put it this way, working an unpaid internship for Liz's boss is not going to get her out of that financial debt. And even like she's working a catering job, which is, you know, sort of just a job job. Yeah, you can survive day to day, but you don't really get that debt behind you. And you don't really have opportunities to move up a ladder, much less a corporate ladder. And so again, even though she does a lot of shady things, illegal things, our sympathy is with her. Not that she wants it particularly, but our sympathy is with her. So it's, it's actually, you know, it is a kind of compelling situation for her. And again, I'll do credit to the actor that she just is totally immersed in this character. You know, I like that she said this was an art house film because I was sort of surprised it was at my, you know, local multiplex because they don't always get the artier kinds of things. I know you probably saw it at the Charles, but I will say that there was quite a decent number of people there giving this movie a shot during opening weekend. How about where you were? Well, you know, there, there were some decent people in, in the audience, but not many decent people on screen. <laughs> so so uh, you're right, though. You know, what's interesting is um, I tend to be old fashioned in terms of making distinctions sometimes between like art house cinema and more commercially based stuff. But you know what, particularly with the multiplication of multiplexes with various streaming options that people have and so on, it is a newer world that we've entered in the sense of the traditional dividing lines between art house and commercial have blurred. And I don't want to go on a, on a diatribe here, but but I will. But in the sense that, you know, you think back years ago when something like the Sundance Festival truly was independent. But increasingly, you know, it was a combination of Hollywood co-opting some of that, but also people at Sundance wanting to sell and sell bigger. And, and you have a meeting after all, don't you, of like Hollywood and Sundance. And increasingly those traditional lines between independent cinema, what, what we were calling art house, called independent cinema traditional dividing lines between that and big mainstream Hollywood, those lines are very fuzzy oftentimes now. And so it's not at all surprising that a film like Emily the Criminal, which yes, has a kind of art house aura to it, right? And Push Come to Shove has that. You know what? Not surprising that you would see it at a local multiplex because 
and I find that encouraging. You know, if it's a good movie, let, let it play wherever it wants to play. And I, I'm happy that it's playing in more theaters. And, and so I'm so glad you mentioned that because this is a film that, you know, you have to be a, a, a I don't want to say an adventurous moviegoer, but you have to be willing to watch a film that's rather downbeat much of the way through. Yes, that's a good way of describing it. It is downbeat. But Mike, tell us what you have been seeing in the art house theater near you. Well, this, the film I'm going to talk about now truly is an art house film, if you will, um, a film called A Love Song. It was shot in southwestern Colorado. I spent a lot of time there over, over the years, so I, I like seeing the scenery. This story could hardly be leaner and more restrained. It, in fact, this is a film oftentimes with so little dialogue, you find yourself savoring or at least sitting through the silences as people talk or don't talk. I think it takes a lot of patience to watch this movie. And occasionally I thought I didn't have maybe as much patience as I should have even because it's so lean. It's so spare. The setup is this. Dale Dickey is the actor playing a character named Faye. Faye is a widow and a woman of few words, as you've probably surmised by now. And we never even see where she actually lives, but she's taken her camper and she's gone off to this lake and she's just hanging out by herself. She's looking at nature. She occasionally talks to other people coming through. She has extended or, or has arranged to perhaps meet a widower. So she's widowed quite a few years. He's a widower for quite a long time now. He's played by Wes Studi. So anyway, within the film, which doesn't explain a whole lot, but there's some letters back and forth and so on, basically an invitation. You know, why doesn't he come out and visit or stay with her? So when he finally does, they're going to talk about old times to the extent that they talk much and perhaps Kindle. They had known each other, uh, this widow and widower, his name's Lido. They had known each other as kids. So when they have recollections at school days, well, you know, how we would pal around as classmates and so on. But then there were these long marriages. Now, of course, long ended. And, and you would think, okay, a widow and a widower, maybe romance in the offing. And I won't go further with that. Just simply it introduces that as a possibility within the story. This is a first feature film by the director, Max Walker Silverman. And it does a good job of setting up that very spare narrative and, and shooting it on, on location in a way that, you know, is really, really compelling at times. Just small figures in, in an immense landscape, if you will, the mountains in the background. But again, it takes patience to watch it because it's so deliberate. A lot of scenes just to people walking and looking off at the lake and this and that. And it's not a, a long film. It's only 81 minutes, but it kind of wears on me after a while. There's not too much going on there. The thing that ultimately I found disappointing here was some of the scenes in this film are extremely what I call natural, not just because it's out there in nature, but just, just the, the you know, you, real people, a sense of real people and just, you know, a, a weathered face and, and a face that shows the, the lived experience and just that against, you know, the mountain backdrop and, and the lake to the side and all. A lot of those scenes work well. There are other scenes, and I don't want to spoil any of them by going too much into other scenes, but there's some other characters in the film and things happening that to me seemed rather stilted seemed to me that, not want to say implausible so much as kind of studied, kind of measured, even down to the level of blocking of how characters will sort of square off and stand, and then some of the things that they do. It almost seemed like in places like a sort of deadpan Aki Karzmaki movie or something in terms of, which is sort of a Scandinavian sensibility of sort of slightly off kilter humor and very dry and droll. And sometimes there's a certain artifice to that. Those scenes didn't work for me very well because right after that, you'll have a scene that's incredibly naturalistic, you know? And, and so when you have really naturalistic scenes and others that are more stilted or more arranged, doesn't always quite work for me that way watching it. But 
Certainly, since you put me on an art house tangent here, it's the sort of film that you would find typically in an art house because it's truly a small movie. In fact, reading the end credits, I recognized some of the names from back years ago when I would go to the Telluride Film Festival, people who have worked out at the festival. Uh, and I mentioned that just because this really is like a small independent film made there on location. And, and you know, it, it's, it's worth watching so long as you have, uh, and I keep using the word patience, so long as you just like stay with it and enjoy it and realize this is a very spare narrative and don't expect too much more. You're not gonna learn a lot about their backgrounds and this and that. It's just presenting them that way. So that is what I call sort of a lukewarm endorsement. Let me turn it over to you because hopefully you'll have some endorsements that are warmer than lukewarm. A couple of great endorsements. And the first one is on Hulu and it is called Prey, P-R-E-Y. It is the origin story for the Predator series of films. 35 years after the original Predator movie, you get the origin story and it has wonderful cinematography, it even, you know, has a little bit of a look of Avatar to it and just in terms of the, you know, created world and, you know, that clicking sound and the shimmer from Predator. They, they kept the parts that would remind you of what you like the Predator movies for. If you're a fan of those or science fiction in general, Prey is wonderful to watch. Mike, are you a Predator fan? No. <laughs> Back to you. <laughs> okay. So not for Mike, but certainly I know there's a lot of people out there who really like the Predator franchise and the, the effects and the character. And you get all that with this new movie. And like I said, it's only available on Hulu, original programming, which I think is also sort of a daring approach to just look for that niche market that enjoyed that particular series. So Prey on Hulu. And the second one is on Amazon Prime, and it is called 13 Lives. Now, Mike, I'm sure you remember the story of the Thai soccer team, the boys trapped in the cave. And I followed it, you know, religiously when it came out, you know, how are they going to get those boys out of the cave? I mean, they ended up, you know, and, and I didn't really know that much about the cave either. I had thought at the time, what were they doing going into a cave? What a silly idea. But you see that it's, it's like, you know, going to Lorraine Caverns or something. They've got stairs and it's it's wide open. You have no sense that anything bad is going to happen. But of course, what does happen is the rains come early and they become trapped and they can't figure out how they're going to get them out. And they were in there for a very long time. So what this has going for it is that it's directed by Ron Howard, who, you know, does really well with this kind of a topic, something that's a disaster and a human interest story and it's very gripping, even though you know how it's going to end. You're on the edge of your seat watching what's going on, and you get some information about how they managed to do what they did. So it has that, you know, documentary quality to it. It's also quite long. It's, you know, almost two and a half hours, but it flies by. It's just a really great take on a familiar story, which, you know, since it has a happy ending, it's just a wonderful experience to just to sort of follow it. Because one of the things you get is, you know, they go to the people in the surrounding areas to say who are farming on that land, so basic subsistence farming. And they say to them, you know, we're going to have to divert all this water. It's going to flood your property. Are you okay with that? And they're all about getting those boys out, you know, to a person. They're just so wonderful people. And, you know, you're just pulling for everybody to make this happen throughout the entire film. So very, very highly recommended. 
and it's available for free on Amazon Prime. Mike, you need to find some way to see this because this will definitely be nominated for some things when we get around to the Oscars. Well, there actually is a documentary film on the same subject, which I have seen. And, and, and like you, I followed it with interest because it's just compelling. They, they go on this hike in a cave and the flood comes in, you know, a sudden downpour and how stranded they are. It's so compelling as story material. Yeah, great stuff. But that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Pandora and Spotify. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.